Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, and Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, We are headed very quickly towards Christmas now. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Advent candle, uh, I get asked all the time, why is, one, why is one of the candles pink? And, and really, the best answer is, is the, the pink one there is to remind us uh, that Christmas is not far away now. Uh, and in many ways, uh, I think the Bible would tell us that as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return again, uh, though it may seem like it could be forever, uh, that in truth, uh, the way the Bible would, would tell us to think about it anyway is that his return is not very long now, uh, that he is coming and things will be made right. Uh, all that is sad will come untrue. And, and we will live with him. He will dwell with us. He will be. There will be no sun because he will be the glory in the sun. Uh, and so we've been talking about these things as we head towards Christmas. And you know, as we get closer to uh, school being out this Friday and all of those things, I do hope you're taking advantage of uh, this Advent guide. There's, there's a lot of work that goes into this stuff. And, and so, I, you know, this past week I said, man, I really hope somebody's using it. We... We are around my family, so I'm around our dinner table, but I hope you are too, and I hope you will take advantage of coming to the Christmas Eve service with us as well. David didn't say this, but 
If you're going to be there, last year we had 500 people. Our best guess is that we can hold 650 in the Ritz. And to be honest, with as much promotion as going into it, if you've noticed the, the, the banners up around town, I really think we're going to have a lot of people. And so come early uh, and sit in the back uh, so, that, so that people who come late and people who are unfamiliar can have the best seats. Uh, that would be a very um, Jesus-like thing to do. So you can serve him by doing that in that service and come and celebrate with us and really take advantage of all that we're doing, okay? So we continue to look this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, at this theme, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And our, our, so our, Advent, our overall Advent theme this, this, uh, this Advent season has been that the gospel is the kingdom, that Jesus' gospel was the kingdom is at hand. And so we've been talking about the kingdom of God, and we're here in another, in another kingdom passage here in Luke's gospel uh, and, and specifically talking about our response to God's kingdom this week, we've said in the past that being that we be people of faith, uh, that we be people who have an abiding, overflowing joy, and today, really, uh, the, call, you know, the call of the kingdom is that we become a community of love that makes visible Jesus' invisible kingdom in the world. As we continue, this, this theme is kind of abstract, isn't it? This idea of what is the kingdom of God, and so I want to continue to try to give you some handles by which you can maybe understand what the Bible's trying to explain to us here. And Dallas Willard, who you may be familiar with his work, he was a professor at USC in California. He, he wrote a book that's really marvelous um, about God's kingdom. And he used the analogy, he says, whenever you, whenever you see the word kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, you ought to think of, um, you ought to think of electricity. That the, metaphor, the metaphor it really uh, conveys is the idea of an electrical current or a spiritual power. So that um, you know, you, when you plug your life into it, it's like, it's like something being plugged into the electrical outlet of your house. So think of all the things that we can do with electricity that we couldn't do without it. I mean, really, it's pretty remarkable when you think, right, of all of the things that we are able to do, all of the appliances we're able to use, all of the resources that are ours, simply because somebody figured out how to wire an electrical current into your house so you can plug things in. Dallas Woods says the kingdom, the kingdom's like that. That because the kingdom is here and among us, uh, that we now have the ability to do all kinds of things with the, electric, the electricity of, the, of the, the kingdom's power, the spirit's movement in our lives that we, would, we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And so, what, you know, the biggest obstacle then is we've been talking throughout these weeks to genuine Christianity in our culture, given what we are learning about the kingdom, is how we have individualized, consumerized, and sentimentalized the gospel. But this language of the kingdom won't let us do that because, because what we see here in these passages this morning, and really all of them, is that this word kingdom carries personal, individual implications for all of us, but also social, racial, and political implications for us too. I mean, what God is doing in the world, and it's just in this one little word, cannot be compartmentalized. It's too big. It's too comprehensive. Now, the gospel is the kingdom so then we have to be concerned with more than just individual spiritual concerns. We said a few weeks ago, the, the message of the gospel is not that when you die, you get a sparkly soul and you get to go to heaven. You leave the earth behind finally and you go to heaven. The gospel really is the opposite, that in Jesus Christ what's happening is that heaven continues to come to earth. And so we, therefore, have to be concerned about political structures in our society and systems of greed and violence and oppression because throughout the history of our nation, if you, I mean, I, I, you know, I hope you realize this is a part of, of the history of our nation. The church has been the force that's led the way in solving most of our society's problems. We're the ones that built hospitals to care for the sick and the dying. We're the ones that started schools to fight poverty and, 
And we're the ones that protested and marched uh, in the civil rights movement and so forth to see the kinds of change happen in our society that needed to change. That's what we do. That's what we've always done. Because the gospel is the kingdom. So wherever God's will is being done on the earth, as it is right now in heaven, the kingdom is coming there. Heaven is coming to the earth. It's invading the earth there. And I think, I think we can all agree upon this. I mean, I think we can say, of course, this is part of what we're called to do. The question becomes, how? How does this happen? And how do we go about this work in the world? And that is what I think is particularly helpful about these two passages that we're going to look at this morning in Luke 13 and then in Luke 17. And so what I want you to do is come, come to those two two places there with me, and let's just ask two questions of the test. Let's first ask, what do we learn about the kingdom from what Jesus teaches us here? And then secondly, in light of what we learn about the kingdom, what should our response to what we learn about the kingdom be? Okay, so that's just, that's the outline that I've, that I've put before you, and it's how we're going to talk about this together this morning. So let's, let's begin just with this question. First, what do we learn about the kingdom from these passages? And the first thing I want to point out is the statement at the beginning of Luke of the Luke 17 passage that we printed for you. The Pharisees there, if you look at verse 20, they asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. Now, the question is loaded with assumptions. Uh, these Pharisees, we know from history, were hoping for political freedom from Rome. They were, really, at the end of the day, a, a religious political party. They were, uh, they were primarily concerned about their religious commitments uh, they were very religious people. The problem was is their religious identity and their national identity were so closely wedded to one another that their religious concerns eventually became political concerns. And so for them, the kingdom meant freedom from Rome. I mean, that's the bottom line for them, freedom from Rome. They want to know when. They want to know when God's going to come and make this happen, when Messiah is going to show up and kick the Romans out and rule over the people of God. That was, and, and, and that was their mistake. Because they assume, if you notice, they assume certain things about the kingdom. They also assume that the kingdom is still a future hope, whereas all this time Jesus has been going through the nation talking and acting and working as if the kingdom was something other than a future hope, that it was actually a present reality. And so you see his response there in verse 20. He says to their question, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So these Pharisees, they're looking for signs that would signal the coming of the kingdom. But Jesus says that's not the way the kingdom comes. It doesn't make the headlines. These Pharisees assumed that there would be social and political events. There would be an election. There would be some kind of political alliance that would form. There would be something that happens in, in the political spheres of the world that you could watch unfold. And as it began to unfold, you would say, ah, there it is. See, it's happening. Or even phenomena in the natural world, earthquakes, astrological signs, like a new star in the sky. These, these sorts of things. And I point this out because evangelicals today tend to look for the kingdom of God in similar ways. They scan the news to see what's, you know, carefully to see what's happening in the Middle East. Each election seems to have some kind of eschatological significance, right? Earthquakes and blood moons and all of these things that you hear about. I mean, we make the same mistake, I think, that the Pharisees do here. And Jesus provides the correction. So look there in verse 20 and 21. He says, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, 
nor will they say, look here, here it is, or there. See, he's, he's teaching something. He's saying that the kingdom is imperceptible, it's invisible, it's hidden, and therefore it's, it's, it's understated and it's misunderstood. And if you're not careful, you'll miss it. And that's what's happened to these Pharisees and it's what's happened to many of us. The wise men in the east went looking in the palaces of Jerusalem for the king whose star appeared in the night sky, but Jesus was born in a backyard shed. The kingdom comes in the back alleys of the world. That's what Jesus is teaching. And the two parables, the reason we link this passage with the passage in Luke 13 is the two parables there in Luke 13 uh, really help us a great deal to grasp this concept. So if you go back there to verses 18 through 21, let's just read it together again. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all was leavened. So two metaphors, a mustard seed and leaven, or, I mean, yeast. It's a little different than yeast, but that's really what, you know, what we understand that to be. And so there's a doctrine. There's a doctrine, and here's the doctrine that I, I really want us to work through together this morning a little bit. And the doctrine here from, from these two par- parables and also from Luke 17 is just is that the kingdom, the kingdom in the world is often invisible, but it's inevitable. The kingdom is invisible, but it's inevitable. The kingdom advances incrementally, but, it, but its advance is inevitable. Now let's take it apart a little bit, okay? The first parable This first image Jesus uses to describe the kingdom is is a mustard seed. Now, we don't connect with this because of the distance between our culture and Jesus' culture, but everyone listening would have known exactly what Jesus was saying here. If you say say she's as crazy as a sprayed roach, everybody who's lived in Florida any amount of time in their life knows exactly what you're talking about, don't we? Right? I mean, you can think of these, these things that people say, or... Or he's as nervous as a, long, as a long-tailed uh, cat in a room full of rocket chairs. Right? Have you ever heard that? I mean, you could come up with a bunch of them. It's, it's you know, in other words, there are these idioms that we use to convey something. Uh, what, what's unique, uh, it, well, in, in Jesus' culture, one of the things that would have been going around that people would have said is, that's as small as a mustard seed. And so what is unique about a mustard seed is that it produces a shrub-like plant that grows to an astounding size, sometimes as high as nine or ten feet, but this mustard seed, the kingdom of God, is this thing that starts out so tiny and insignificant, but it grows and becomes, this one grows and becomes a tree, not a shrub, a tree so high and so sturdy that the birds make nests in its branches. It's a really, really amazing picture, metaphor. So there's a number of things, you know, so the kingdom is small, at least at the beginning. The kingdom has very small beginnings, very understated at the, on the front end. It doesn't, it doesn't make a great first impression a lot of times. And that's just a helpful thing to remember as you parent kids and as you dream about reaching your neighbors with the gospel or even as you look in your own life and you think, gosh, it doesn't feel like much is going on. The kingdom is very understated, very small at the beginning. But the second thing is, is that we also learn that the kingdom is very slow in coming. I mean, think about the metaphor. It takes time to grow a tree, doesn't it? Years, decades. It takes time to make to bake good bread. Now, my wife used to make this amazing bread from a starter, right? It, it took, I mean, it took weeks just to get the starter right and then make the bread, okay? Now, now, unfortunately, it was white bread. Now, you know, white bread is like evil, and so we don't eat the white bread anymore. 
Uh, and it's unfortunate because the kids loved it. But it was this white bread that literally turned to paste and poison in your stomach. But we ate it anyway because it tasted so good, right? But it, it, the point is it took forever to make this stuff. The Holy Spirit's work in our lives is called fruit. And it takes a long time to grow pineapple. It takes a long time to grow patience and kindness and joy and self-control in us. And so the kingdom's slow in coming. It's small and it's slow and... And the kingdom is also, we learn here, subversive and surprising or subtle, whatever word you want to use. It flies under the radar. The things that the Pharisees come to associate with the promise of God's kingdom and to expect military power and national triumph and visible glory, these things are conspicuously absent from Jesus' ministry. So they assume, they look at him, and the things they expect to be there aren't there, and so they assume the kingdom has not come yet. But they misunderstand because the woman takes 11, we're told there in verse 21, and, and she hides it in the dough. Uh, and that's a, really, that's a really important word there. The Greek word is kryptoi, which should sound familiar. It's our word cryptic. And the way the kingdom works is cryptic. You can't watch leaven work. You, you put it in the dough, you, t- you set it aside, and you come back in a few minutes, and it's expanded. It's blown up, and the leaven is working. You can't see it, but it's working. It's cryptic. It's mysterious, and this is what Jesus is trying to teach us here. We hear kingdom, and we expect the lightning that he talks about down there in in chapter 17. But make sure you hear what Jesus is saying here. One day it will be like that. One day it will be like that, but the kingdom's advance in the world for now. For now, verse 25 of chapter 17, one day there'll be lightning, and, and all of these things that will be unmistakable, but for now the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by this generation. And doesn't that feel like what's happening around us in the world. But the teaching is, is even in that, the kingdom of God is moving forward. It's advancing. There'll be lightning one day, but for now there's not. So the kingdom is slow and, excuse me, it's small in the beginning, it's slow in coming, and coming, it, and it really, it really works in a subversive, surprising, subtle way. But ultimately what Jesus is teaching is here is that the kingdom is supernatural. And listen, I'm walking in the Spirit because everything starts with the same letter this morning. But um, again, the point of the saying <clears throat> that a, of a mustard seed, you know, is that the, the, this mustard seed becomes a tree, which, which mustard seeds don't become tree. They become shrubs. But this mustard seed becomes a tree. And what Jesus is teaching here is that the kingdom's growth is mysterious. You can't produce it on your own. You can't control it. You can't measure it. That God is working all around you in ways that, that you probably aren't even aware of. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's always by his power. It's a supernatural thing that's taking place. So the kingdom of God is not a power movement. It's a mustard seed movement. It advances through weakness and humility and brokenness and need and want and emptiness and barrenness and prayer and sacrifice and these sorts of things. Not through political, military might or maneuvering or power plays. You see? We're learning something about the way God works in the world here. The kingdom is invisible. It's imperceptible. It's incremental. But don't miss. Don't miss. But we're also taught here that even though it's invisible and imperceptible and incremental, it is also inevitable. And that's the good news. No matter how small it might be at the beginning, no matter how slow it might be in coming, no matter how many apparent setbacks it might meet with along the way, the kingdoms of this world, we're going to read this on Tuesday, and you should just stop and give a woohoo or something. But in Revelation 11, the kingdoms of this world will give way before the kingdom of Christ. 
It's just a matter of time. He will reign. He will be victorious. And there's not anything that any of us, any elected official, any radical military group can do to stop what God intends to do with the world through Christ. And that really is the message. We're reading Revelation. I love, we end every year, you know, in our community Bible reading program, reading Revelation. And Revelation is, is, is a letter written by John to churches that are, that are, that are being persecuted. They're, they're enduring massive trib- tribulation because of their faith. And really what, what John is doing in Revelation is he's peeling back the reality of their lives and he's saying, look, given, you know, I, I realize there's all this tribulation going on, but don't forget the kingdom. Don't forget the kingdom. Look past your tribulation to the kingdom because what is really real in the world is not what appears to be all this setback and opposition. What is really real is Jesus is taking the kingdoms of this world and he is dismantling them and he is setting up his kingdom forever. That's what's really happening. Now it takes faith to believe that, doesn't it? It takes faith for us to believe that. Can you imagine what faith it took for these people John is writing to to believe that as well? But think about the metaphor of the leaven. Okay, come to that parable for a minute. The leaven is a living organism that works its way, we're told, through the dough. It activates the sugars in the flour and converts them to carbon dioxide. Okay, now that, that's, that's, the, that's really the reality. The translation's unfortunate because it doesn't convey, uh, really, it's too subtle, I think. It, there's really something powerful that's happening here that's being conveyed. The kingdom of heaven is a living thing that spreads and penetrates whatever it's in. And so for Jesus to say that the kingdom of heaven has come into the world, he means that it is penetrating, that God's reign and rule, that God's authority and his power and and his love and the working of his spirit is penetrating into every square inch of the natural world and human society. That the love and the power of God is constantly crashing into human weakness and sin, but he always wins. Converting hearts, changing neighborhoods and cities and political structures, and this has huge implications for our lives. It has huge implications for what it means to be a Christian. If it's true, uh, then there's no, there's no such thing as compartmentalization in Christianity. Listen to Richard Phillips. Here's he, the way he says this. This is the reality, you know, f- confronting this reality for us in our own individual lives of what we're learning about the kingdom here. Richard Phillips says this. He says, we find our hearts gripped by the gospel but want to get its influence away from our place of work, or out of our social circle, away from our petty sins, which we have grown to cherish. But, listen, but it is impossible to restrain the growth of the kingdom once it's rooted within you. Now, if you're a parent and you're walking through hard times with your kids, isn't that an amazingly comforting statement? Listen, he goes on. You will not be able to contain God's power and his love in a corner of your life. If it is a true work of grace that is rooted in your heart, it will eventually spread and shape in Christ's image your dreams, your goals, your affections, your leisure, your manner of speaking, your habits, your relationships, your use of money, your whole way of thinking and living. Just a little seed that begins to just take over and and invade all the other parts of your life. But not only personally. uh, Well, I mean, you know, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. There's a a work that's begun, and God's going to finish it. That's, That's the teaching for us personally. But also, look, in society, I mean, there, there's a huge, there's a huge, huge, you know, implication of this for what we believe to be the, um, the, 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 the end goal for the city we live in. That we, that we should expect 
that the gospel will make a visible difference in our city, not just in churches we're trying to plant, but in schools and hospitals and hospices and all the other structures of our society. That's what we're aiming for anyway. And this is really what the teaching of this parable is. That though the kingdom is invisible and incremental in its growth, it is ultimately inevitable. And one day, the, the earth will be covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what the prophets say. Man, I can't wait. And it's coming. But before we move on to the second point, let me just make some applications here uh, for us because I think it's important that we do this, okay? And so I, I want to make kind of four, four just quick applications. And, and the first is, uh, notice that I think there's the expectation that we wrongly make that, that this kind of thing I'm talking about must mean some sort of political change. But I, I think Jesus is saying it's something that goes beyond that. Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, remember, in Luke 17, 20. They are expecting political, social, structural changes that will signal the coming of God's kingdom. But Jesus says it doesn't happen that way. You can't look and say, there it is. And so I think in many ways we have some repenting to do. And this is really what I'm trying to do in these things here, lead us in, in repentance and faith. We have some repenting to do in regards to our notions of power. In other words, how we really believe change happens in the world. We default to the political sphere, like the Pharisees, uh, many times in, in, in our expectations here. And James Davison Hunter, who's a PCA ruling elder in our denomination and professor at the University of Virginia, wrote a great book entitled To Change the World. And Tim Keller, by the way, says that... Um, that it's the book. It's the book that's, that's influenced his kind of views on cultural engagement. So there you go. But James Davison Hunter warned about what he called politi- politicization. And here's how, he, here's how he describes it. He says it's the turn to the instrumentality of the state to find solution to public problems. So he says, this turn towards politics means that we find it difficult to think of a way to address public problems and issues in any way that is not political. Instead of the political realm being part of public life, all of public life tends to be reduced to the political. Now, gosh, it's a big statement, and we got other concerns, and we can't, unfortunately, unpack that. We could talk for an hour about that. I wish we had more time. But the, but the issue is this, that you, you know, do you believe you have to have political power in order to see change happen? Is the only way to publicly declare and, and, and live out your faith uh, a political, you know, a political reality. Do you have to have political power in order to see change happen? And I think what the, what the scripture teaches and the argument Hunter is making there is, no, that's simply not true. That's simply not the case. Because the kingdom doesn't come like that. That's what Jesus is saying. And so be careful of our assumptions about, uh, let's, don't, let's, don't turn, let's don't turn the political process or political structures into idols that we look to to save us. But the second thing is, the second application I would make is let's, let's, let's be grounded in a, in a real uh, good vision of what the Scripture means when it calls us people who've been made in the image of God. Okay, if you were to read a history book or listen to a presidential address, you might be tempted to think that it is the emperors and czars, the kings and queens and prime ministers and executives of the world that are the primary movers and shakers of world history. And I think what Jesus teaches us here directly contradicts that way of thinking. Uh, the Bible t- says that all of us were made in the images, image of God. Now, when Moses wrote that to uh, the slaves, the Israelite slaves coming out of Egypt in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis was written to this group of people who had been in slavery to a Pharaoh. Everybody would have called the Pharaoh the image of God. Pharaoh would have been known as the image of God because an image of God in the ancient society was a person who lived in between heaven and earth. 
And the job of an image of God was to learn the will of the, of the God in heaven and then to use whatever political power and authority and whatever it might be on the earth to make sure that what the God in heaven wanted to happen began to happen on the earth. That, that was the image of God. A, a pharaoh or a king or somebody with immense power and authority who could learn the will of heaven and then take his authority and his power and prestige and begin to make sure it happened upon the earth. And Moses turned to these, this ragtag bunch of Israelite slaves coming out from underneath the thumb of an image of God. And he said, no, 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 you're all made in God's image. I mean, do you know what that means? It means it is not those with their hands on the mantle of power that are the ones who move history. The kingdom of heaven is advancing, but not in the legislative chambers and courthouses and throne rooms of this world. Because the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It takes root and it grows among those who quietly submit themselves to the will of God. It is not accomplished through the kings and power brokers and hu- of human history. It is not through those people that God accomplishes his purposes in the world. Sometimes he does, but not, not mainly through them. Rather, it is through little minority bands of people who have put their faith in Jesus and are committed to living as his disciples. Small people doing small things, just being faithful, going to work to provide for a family, doing the laundry, taking out the trash, 15-year-olds going to school and caring about the people who sit at the lunch table next to them. That's the way the kingdom of God comes into the world. (laughs) That's the teaching. Okay, so be careful of, of idolizing political processes. Have a clear, grounded understanding of what the scripture means by the image of God. A third application I would make to you before we move on is be careful, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary of yourself or others, but be encouraged by small successes that you see. You know, it's almost time to make New Year's resolutions, isn't it? You know what the great thing is? I have absolutely no work to do on my New Year's resolutions this year. If you are praying for me and you wrote down some of the things that I said I needed to change in 2015, just carry them over to 2016 and keep praying the same stuff, okay? And I imagine it's true for a lot of you too. So I'm, I'm happy that I don't have a lot of work to do here at the end to figure out what I need God to do. And it really works that way, doesn't it? Because the work of God in your life is a slow work. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't lose heart. Don't, don't be discouraged where uh, it feels like you're fighting the same battle you've always fought and you can't figure out how to do it. Rejoice in the little victories. Because even in the little things, God's kingdom is powerfully advancing in you and through you. Okay? So that's an application. And then the last thing think we need to be careful of and really look to repent for is we need to be careful and we need to repent of being in a hurry. You can't hurry the work of God in your life. There's no fast track to wisdom or character or a good marriage or healing from painful things that have happened in your life or any excellence in any craft. And so just some things there that we learn about the way God works in the world. The kingdom comes in ways that can't be observed. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast working its way through dough. It starts small. It moves slow. It constantly surprises you. It's a supernatural thing that's accomplished by God's power and not ours. So what should our response be? And let's just finish. We have just a few minutes together before we come to the close here. So let's just talk for a minute about what our response should be. We have to learn from the mistake that these Pharisees made. Look at the question again in verse 20 that they ask. The way they phrase it, they ask, when would the kingdom come? And again, we've said, what do they assume? They assume that it hasn't come yet, that it's still a future thing. 
that has no practical impact on the present. And that's their big mistake. These Pharisees are spending all of their time forecasting future signs that point to the kingdom's arrival instead uh, instead in, in, of, of focusing on what Jesus has been doing right there in front of their eyes. They're ignoring what's been going on all around them in the present. All the things that, that he's been doing, they're completely missing all that God has been doing through Jesus' ministry as he has gone throughout the nation right there in front of their faces. And we need to be careful not to make the same mistake because we can get so focused on um, what is still coming and what our hopes for the future that we ignore and we underestimate what is already here, what we already have. Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for, look at what he says, verse 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is, let me insert, already in the midst of you. See, if you live like the kingdom is still a future event, then you'll be like the people that Jesus describes. This is the reason for this description here, down in these verses. The people in the days of Noah, the people... In the days of Lot, look there, verse 27, eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling and planting and building and these sorts of things. Busy, busy living life, busy living life and doing things, but completely unaware of the spiritual resources available to you because you still think the kingdom is something far off into the future. And so it's not connected with the day-to-day life that you're living. You'll live unplugged from the power source. That's the meaning of the language here. So the reason we don't live with more power and purpose, with more energy and victory, is because we don't know what we already have. If you believe in Jesus and in repentance and faith, you've begun a relationship with him, then you're plugged into the power source. The electrical current of kingdom power and love is coursing through you. We, uh, we moved a year and a half ago, but before we moved, we had this house in Garden Grove. John Wood planted all these, built all these homes, and he planted all these oak trees in the 70s. In the neighborhood, and when we bought the house, uh, we had three of them uh, in the three corners of our lot. Uh, when we sold the house 15 later, years later, we only had one because two of them, in separate instances, ended up on top of our house. Now, let me tell you, when an oak tree, when a 30-year-old, 40-year-old oak tree comes crashing into your roof, it's a pretty powerful thing because these things were huge. And, and yet, I, you know, I would go out into the yard, and, if, you know, you go out and, and you pick up an, an, an acorn, and you look at the acorn... And then you look up at the oak tree, and, you, and, and you know, I think you're meant, I, I just marvel at everything, everything needed to produce that is found in that. Isn't that an amazing thing? That everything needed to produce a gigantic oak tree is contained in that little seed. Now, here's my question. Do you know that? Do you live like that is true of you? You know, an iron is cold and useless if it's just sitting there, but if it gets plugged in, it gets hot. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is in the midst of you. Some translations put it, the kingdom of heaven is within you. We're not really sure which, you know, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little hard to know exactly how that phrase there should be translated, so I'm just going to kind of use both of them and just say I really think there are two applications for that. And those two applications are first, that the kingdom is invisible, but it becomes visible it becomes visible when people start to live from the inside out and not the outside in. You remember the story that we told a few months ago of Jesus and the disciples in the storm? The peace within Jesus had the power to create peace in, in his men and in the storm itself and in the circumstances of his life. And the gospel is the power of God, the Bible says, the seed of the gospel planted in you when you become a Christian is powerful enough to change you and not only you, but 
but to make you like the giant oak tree where others come and they rest in the shade that is the, the flourishing that your life has provided for them. The gospel's power in you to create community, to affect your work environment, to change your neighborhood. And so let me be just rude for one minute and say, stop complaining about your circumstances. Change your circumstances. Don't, you know, God's love and power, the life of the kingdom, spiritual electricity coursing through you, through you is the means for whatever change you desire in your life. Now, this is not some sort of self-actualization psychobabble. It is the grace of God to you, in you, through you. But we have to connect with that. And the second thing is, is that the kingdom is invisible, but it becomes visible not only in people who begin to live from the inside out, but it becomes visible in the world, in the gospel, the community, the church. You see that verse 20, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. When we come together, in other words, it's a community thing. The kingdom is there in our life together. When we get together for a Christmas party like last night and we love and and we laugh and we enjoy one another, the kingdom of God is there. When we sacrifice and we show hospitality, we make sure families in our community have a great Christmas, the kingdom of God is there. When we gather at this table, as we will in just a minute, to proclaim his death, the kingdom of God is there. When we forgive one another and we, and, we, and we choose kindness, the kingdom of God is there. The church is the gospel mustard seed that God has planted in the world. It is the leaven penetrating the world system and affecting change. And we do this in two ways, by sharing the gospel with the world and by being a community of the gospel that authenticates the message that we share. The word, excuse me, God's solution to the brokenness of the world was the incarnation, the word made flesh, and that hasn't changed. And so James Davison Hunter, who I, who I referenced earlier, he wrote this. He said, if there is a possibility for human flourishing in a world such as ours, it, it, it begins when God's love becomes flesh in us, is embodied in us, is enacted through us, and in doing so, a trust is forged between the word spoken and the reality to which it speaks. To words we speak and to the realities in which we point. And so this really is our call in the world to go and to be a people that put on display in the way we live with one another the love and the grace and the power of God towards us. You know, in John 12, Jesus says, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The kingdom of God, we're told, is like a mustard seed that becomes a tree that the birds of the air nest in, well, there's only one way for the tiny mustard seed or the acorn to become the oak tree, the towering tree. If you were to buy a mustard seed and keep it in your pantry after 100 years, if it were still there and it hadn't disintegrated into dust, it would still just be a mustard seed. In order to grow into the towering tree, you have to bury the seed in the earth, and it has to die there. And once it dies, what happens in the process is it bursts. Once it dies, it bursts open and new life gushes forth. Now, Jesus is thinking about the kingdom of God, and he knew that there was only one way for the kingdom to advance in the world and make all things new, and that was that like the seed, he would have to be killed and buried in the earth, and that's exactly what happened, isn't it? We celebrate his birth at Christmas. We celebrate his birth at Christmas, his incarnation, his coming into the world, and I read somewhere this week we should never preach or, or, or celebrate or whatever it might be, Jesus' birth, without also preaching and celebrating his death. After all, he was born to die, He was crucified by Roman soldiers. He died in our place. He did this because it was the only way to reconcile us to God so that the wrath and the justice of God against our sin 
might be paid in full, that he stepped into our place and offered himself. He took God's wrath and died, and they buried him in the earth, but his death did not signal defeat because the grave could not hold him. And after three days, he exploded out of the grave, much like the plant shoots explode out of the dying seed. And it was that act of sacrificial love, that explosion of love and new life, that if your faith is in him, you're connected to, and it now provides the power for the kingdom's advance in you and in the world. And so ultimately, Jesus is the mustard seed. His tree is the one we take refuge in. And now by the Spirit, just like the leaven, he is working his way through our lives and through the world. And if you put your faith in him and trust in him to save you, if you put yourself in the way of his working, then no matter how small or insignificant or forgotten you might be or feel, no matter how little you might make, uh, make yourself out to be, no matter how little you might understand about the new life in you, he can take hold of you. His love and power can come into your life. He can create an explosion of grace in you that will bear fruit first in you, but then also for the sake of others. You'll be part of seeing his kingdom come and his will being done on the earth as it is in heaven, even now. And so we come to his table this morning that he might once again plug our lives into the electric current of his love and power. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, would you meet us now as we gather around this meal that you have provided for us? It is here as we eat and drink that we, that we practice for the, the feast that will be ours in heaven one day when we gather with all those from the north and south and the east and west to recline at your table and to celebrate the consummation of your kingdom finally come in all its fullness. But even now as we wander and we wait, this is a foretaste. This is, a, this is the appetizers. This is, the, this is the, the crumbs that we get that remind us that there's something fuller coming. And so help us to eat and drink in faith today and encourage our hearts against fear and the cynicism and the discouragement that can so easily be ours because your kingdom is small and slow in coming. Remind us, help us to look past our tribulation at this table now to the reality of your kingdom and may it warm our hearts and comfort us and encourage us and embolden us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. And when we sing that line, born is the king of Israel, what we really mean is born is the king of the whole earth. Born, born is the king of America. Born is the king of every nation in the world. It's a political statement that's charged uh, with, with political implications. And so it really is our hope. It really is, it really is um, the hope of God's kingdom come, is that in this child we celebrate Christmas, uh, it was the seed of God's kingdom upon the earth, and the kingdom continues to advance until the earth is swallowed up. And uh, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ. Now, if you dare to believe that and to align your life with God's purposes in the world, then he promises to pour out his blessing and his favor and his love upon you. And that's what this benediction is about. So uh, whatever your life may look like out there, however small, insignificant, however subtle, however slow it might seem, these words ring true no matter what your experience is. So anchor your life to these words, not to your experience. That's what this benediction is for. Receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.